Welcome, everyone, to Waking from the American Dream. This is Kelly Carlin. And, you know, since we've done a total of three shows, I think the fourth show is, uh, makes it officially its tradition, uh, we're going to start with a song. What if I'd done what I said I would do? What if I spent less time just looking through? What if I'd gotten up early and gone back to school? Or spent each Sunday in the same big room? If I had one day, one day to live, I'd be on my way to the time that I'd given up to boredom and gain. If I had one day, I'd forget to blame. Be on my way to the times that I've given up for fiction and names. If I had one day, just one day, what if I'd gone where I said I would go? If I'd kept my word, would anyone know? Or if I'd gotten in early and answered the phone, or read through the chapters before on my own? If I had one day, one day to live, I'd be on my way to the time that I'd given up to boredom and gain. If I had one day, I'd be the one to blame. Yeah, what can I say to the time spent complaining just when things went my way? If I had one day, just one day. To act ever holds you back Then there is no help Or is it better to play it safe And spend the rest of your days asking Did I rob myself? Or is it better to fail As you probably will As nameless did before Yet success, catastrophe at best Then no answer is ever only yours if I had one day, one day to live, I'd be on my way to the time that I'd given up to boredom and gain. If I had one day, I'd do it all the same. Yeah, what can I say to the times that I've given up for fiction and names? If I had one day, just one day, if I had one day, if I had Times that have given up for fiction and names If I had one day, just one day That was uh, Logan Heftel, a fine young man who I met in New York City. He was working with Taylor Negron. Uh, Taylor was doing his one-man show. And I was in New York, actually, to spread my father's ashes and I met Logan and uh, a really group, great group of uh, artists uh, one night. And we all went to the Bitter End and uh, spread some ashes in front of the Bitter End on Bleecker Street together. You can find Logan certainly on Facebook and MySpace. Uh, his last name is spelled H-E-F-T-E-L. So, yeah, one day. Uh, you know, here's the deal. It's been quite a week. I mean, we've had 
or two weeks actually. I was sick last week, first of all, I want to apologize for not being here. And uh, and I just love that song because it's really about, you know, what do you really want to fill your day with? <laughs> do you want to fill it with angst and pulling your hair out and screaming and yelling? But, you know, I don't. So uh, today's uh, a new day and I'm healthy and uh, we're going to do something a little special today. I'm going to play an interview here that I have with Lee Camp. Uh, Lee was out here in L.A. about a month ago and we sat down and we... Uh, shot the shit, as they say. And then after Lee, um, I'm really excited because um, I have a play date today and one of my friends came over and he and I are going to hang out a little bit later. But uh, right now, uh, here's Mr. Fabulous Lee and I talking. So I am sitting in my studio, as I usually am, uh, now, with a new friend, Lee Camp, we're sitting here shooting the shit, as I like to say. New expression we're trying out. Yeah, never heard it before, really. <laughs> it's uh, kind of a newfangled expression. <laughs> Couldn't think of anything else, and just love the word shit. So yeah, it came about it. when we were firing shit out of guns. We were like, we should shoot the shit more often. Yeah, that's true. That's kind of a messy thing. <laughs> but fun. Shooting, shooting the shit. I never really thought about the physicality of it even. I mean, even if you don't use a gun, it's kind of a strange image to think about. (laughs) Yeah, such a nice way to start our day, isn't it? Picturing shooting the shit, literally. Uh, So as we are sitting here shooting the shit, uh, I I wanted to know, I've never, we've never really talked about it, but I'm really interested in how you got into comedy, being a stand-up, and like what that was, that little journey for you, that part of your life? Um, I started, I mean, you know, as with everybody, I think it was to get attention and maybe to get some respect from my older brother who never said I ever did anything right or good or well, but when I'd make him laugh, it was like he unwillingly would say good job, you know, like the laughter would be the good job. But... uh um, I started writing when I was like writing humor when I was 13, 14, uh, and I thought I was going to be a humor writer all the way up until, even though I appreciated stand-up, I just had never been on a stage and couldn't even conceive of myself having the balls to get on a stage. And so I thought I was going to be a humor writer all the way until I got into college, and then I just became obsessed with like, I should try performing it. And so my first time at an open mic was my first time ever on a stage. Wow. How old were you then? Uh, I was... had just turned 19. So I'd been writing for a long time, but I hadn't tried it on stage. And what was the difference for you, uh, I mean, as a writer of humor and then a performer of humor, like, what's the different similarities in those things for you? Uh, Yeah, I think there's so much difference, uh, but it took me a long time to, I think, become a better performer. Uh, I think for a long time, it, although I didn't really know it at the time, I think it was like I was reading my stuff from the stage. And luckily, my, you know, my stuff started out funny enough that, like, I'd get enough laughs and, and you know, I could be an okay stand-up right. without <laughs> even really performing it. And so I feel like in, in the past, you know, five years, I've gotten better at, at, at making it a performance and, you know, not just saying things, but demonstrating them through... My voice, you know. And, and your approach to humor and, and, I mean, 
what were you writing about? I mean, what, at 13, you, you, you had something to say to the world. And, and so I'm always curious if people at like that age like get like they're observing something and they need to comment. And I, I think that's amazing. Geopolitics. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, See, and who was president then? Probably what, Clinton? Clinton. <laughs> well, Anna Lewinsky stuff. Um, well, 13-year-olds blow jobs. It pretty fits good <laughs> exactly, in the humor thing. Exactly. No, I, I definitely, it was very Seinfeldian. I mean, I think he was the very was the biggest influence on me at that age. Uh, him and, like, Dave Barry, writing-wise. and Yeah, I started off very uh, not, not edgy, not pushing any borders, not saying anything with any weight to it. It was all very uh, uh, observational. And, and I didn't, I, I mean, I was, I, you know, I was followed politics like in college but I didn't decide it was something I really needed to say on stage until you know five years into my comedy career or something and for you what was that turning point was there something in the world that happened or yeah I think I, I think that I mean there's no one specific turning point but I think the bush years started to weigh on me and and I you know I became more educated in in what was going on in the world and and it was like it felt like a combination of like I have to be talking about this with the f the fact that I, f I felt better that if I was saying something that mattered even if people weren't laughing it's like my words still mattered mm. whereas I started to feel like if I was talking about something that that was just observational I was like well if they don't laugh I'm just a monkey up here <laughs> like, I am a useless. A pile of you know unfunny <laughs> shit. If I if I am not making them laugh, and and so it it was like those two things kind of combined to to make it so that I really wanted ninety percent of what I say to to have some kind of thought behind it, some kind of deeper meaning. Right, right. Um, and and you know, there's always this this discussion about comedy. You know, like people used to ask my dad, "Do you?" You know, are you doing this because you, you know, want to make people think? And he used to say no, mm -hmm. you know, which used to shock mm -hmm. people. He's like, no, I really love making people laugh. And, you know, he also loved to, 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 to string out a, a, a good argument about something. And, if, mm -hmm. and, the, and he learned that he didn't always have to get a laugh, that the wheels were turning in their head. Mm -hmm. There was a satisfaction in that, too. Um, so for you, is it, do you, are you trying to change people's minds? Are you, are you, are you? Uh, I think it's a lot to ask to say that, that people would walk out with a changed mind. But what I, what I'd like to get is probably maybe one step before that where I'm giving them facts through jokes that they didn't have before. Mm. Like I've done, I've done various little things on the death penalty, uh, uh, you know, over the past several years, but I have a new thing I'm doing that's like every argument against the death penalty and why it's bullshit, but I'm, you know, it's all jokes through it, mm -hmm. but they leave with like new facts. Oh, that, that guy, an innocent guy was put to death, like a provenly innocent guy was put to death five years ago. I had no idea. And right. Like, like the number one determinant of the death penalty is race of the victim. So, you know, you kill a black person, no big deal, but you kill a white person, that's big shit. Uh, and, and so it's like, they're laughing through it, but then they walk out of that room and they still know those facts. Right. Right. So, I love that. That's yeah. very cool. Uh, we were talking earlier, uh, before we turned on the recorder here, a little bit about this talk radio kind of 
well, I wouldn't even call it discourse. <laughs> <laughs> dysentery, maybe? Yes. <laughs> Talk radio dysentery. Pretty much so. And and this this uh, this this supposed conversation that the right and left are having in this country, which is just this shouting match basically at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and it's, it's frustrating for me. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like doing this show is because I, I want to talk about things that are beyond the lobbying back and forth of talking points. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I know you go on a lot of these shows and we were talking about that and how sometimes it's just boring. It's just like, okay, I don't want to just be your whipping boy or, yeah. or be the left or whatever it is. How do you hold this for yourself? Like, where do you come down with this stuff? Well, it's so tough uh, in terms of having a career because it's like those type of little things, you know, being the talking head on VH1 or whatever, and uh, you know, inserting lame jokes about celebrities, like it gets your name out there and it gets people to show up to the shows, which is what I ultimately want. And and so it's tough to say no to these things, but I guess you just, I, I mean, I try and figure out where to draw the line, like, okay, this is just too stupid. Um, but I am on, you know, you end up on a lot of these radio shows where you're like, I don't care about this at all. And, and, uh, I don't know, like, and the other, the other difficult thing, which when you said, which side do you, you know, where do you come down on this is, is in terms of like the left, right thing. It's like, even though I'm on left wing radio, they very much want a very defined, like pro Obama yes. point of view. And, and at the beginning of the last interview I was on, they were like, they were like, so where do you stand on Obama? And I'm like, I'm very ambivalent because I mean, ambivalent, <laughs> ambivalent. Oh, that's a new word. Yeah. I'm ambivalent. I don't know it's what. It's Obama oh, ambivalence. Oh, oh, it was Obama. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, like, where did... <laughs> I was like, where did I get the O from? Obama. Okay. Obivalent. Yeah, that's what he's caused me to be. Uh, no, but I'm very ambivalent because he, he's done... He's 100% better than Bush, but he's uh, fucking... There's so many other problems that that he he's not dealing with, or the money interests are too great, and, and he's... Uh, and so, you know, I kind of said that in not so many words, and, and they were like, okay, let's uh, move on to it. So, you know, like, we don't really want to talk about that. We'll talk about how the right wing is nutbags, and that's it. Well, it, it, I mean, it brings up a great point, because I, the mainstream media have such a difficulty with anything that's in the gray area. No nuance. Yeah, there's no nuance left Mm-hmm. in this world out there on, on on the big speakers that come into our house with the big <laughs> pictures and I'm really concerned about that because yeah. critical thinking takes the ability to hold diametrically opposed ideas at the same time mm-hmm. it takes the ability to to understand nuanced aspects of issues and things and so as like a citizen of America mm-hmm. I sit here going where does this lead, you know? Yeah. yeah, it feels like it just spirals to an end point. <laughs> yeah, like where we're standing with guns on opposite <laughs> sides of the line, you know? Yeah. And it, like yeah. one side's dressed in red and the other side's dressed in blue. <laughs> one side has tea bags on their hats. <laughs> yes, and the other side is maybe, I don't know, mar- medical marijuana t-shirts <laughs> on. I'm not quite sure, but uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it is a dumbing down, and but I also feel like that's what the right does so well. Even though I shouldn't be saying oh, the right and the left, but the the right is very good at like they're able to get everyone to vote against their interests by boiling everything down to like talking points. Whereas mm-hmm. the left has always been a more nuanced position. We, there's a myriad of different people 
uh, and different types of people. And, and so that's why the debate is so much easier for the right. Yeah. It's like these five talking points, whereas the left is like, no, I care more about this. I care about this. You know, like, yeah, yeah. And, and do you have friends or people in your circle who are more conservative than you that you get to have these conversations like one-on-one -on -one with real people? Yeah, I was, uh, I was with some family recently, and even though they were, you know, liberal and we were bashing on Bush for a few minutes uh, recently, we then, I then brought up the mosque thing, and like, oh, isn't it crazy, who cares if someone built a mosque or whatever, and they were vehemently opposed to the mosque mm -hmm. uh, uh, near Ground Zero, and, you know, they're... And, you know, I tried to debate it with them for a little bit, but essentially their argument came down to, it's disgusting. Mm. It's just disgusting. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I don't know where to go with that. But, <laughs> and, like, you agree on so many other things, but you can't get that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like I want... I mean, I have this, like, weird fantasy of uh, teaching people to have conversations again with each other, you know, <laughs> yeah. so that we can actually really hear... Yeah. You know, because everyone has a right to their opinion, first of all, and and obviously the more informed an opinion is, I think the richer the opinion is, mm -hmm. and, the, and the more examined it is, basically. You know, I mean, that's what kind of irritates me these days, is people just kind of put on their hat, and then that's uh, that's who I am now. I'm, like you were saying, it's like, oh, I'm doing the left-wing radio show, I have to love Obama. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, there's, the, and, and I, you know, and what I always hear underneath these things you know, and even people, I mean, I used to like sit there and do this like meditation with, with Dick Cheney, basically, <laughs> to understand. That is a book title right there. <laughs> meditation with Dick Cheney. <laughs> and, and part of the meditation was trying to sit with him and A, first get that he's a human being with a beating heart, although I do question that at times. <laughs> I do. I try to, it's you know. It's a machine now. It's, it, well, well, yeah, it, it, it is kind of actually, he does have a machine on it. <laughs> Um, but really try to see, like, if you took away the power grab and the ego and all that kind of stuff, like, underneath it all, you know, the value systems of conservatives, like, what's important to them. And they, and they just, they, they have, a, a, basically, we all care about the same things. You know, of course we, we want safety. Of course we want our families to do well. Of course mm -hmm. we want this and that. It's yeah. just, you know, we disagree on the ways in which we need to do these things. And and what I what one of my fantasies is is getting people back to the place where it's like let's at least agree that we agree about some real basics here, mm -hmm. and what it feels like with the rhetoric ramped up certainly in this electric election season, which is insanely yeah. <laughs> it's so insane yeah. is that people aren't even willing to say we agree on the basics of anything in this country anymore. It's, it's, yeah. that's frightening to me. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in that conversation, I feel like you'd have much more success with your average conservative in this country. Yes. Than with, because I draw a big line between like the Dick Cheney's of the world, the, you know, right wing, the Glenn Beck's yeah. and, and like your average American who's voting, who's listening to Glenn Beck every day. But I bet you'd have a lot of success with that average American saying, don't you want safety for your kids? Yeah, I do. Whereas with the people that I feel like are running the, the, the right, show, yeah. it's, it's about greed and, and yeah. power. 
Yeah, yeah. So they well, feel like screw the safety. I don't want the, I want the money. <laughs> yeah, and and even if they even if they thought it was about the safety, the part of them that's running them is the part that is the power part. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's all ego driven ultimately in my mind. You know, and we all have our own version of that. Every day we have to deal with our stinking little egos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, ego's okay. Without an ego, you'd be a psychotic person. So you know, you do need somewhat of an ego. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but ego um, helps. What is your personal American dream? <laughs> this is interesting, and uh, and to bring it takes on a whole new meaning. Uh, depending, seeing as how you, where you got the uh, the quote from, <laughs> um, my American dream. I don't know. It's it's. I mean, I, I think it's to. I, I think it's to, to feel, I mean, part of it's to feel like I made a difference in, in some way, and, and the other part of it is to feel like uh, that, that, I, that I really experienced the life I was having, whereas so much now is, is we're all so caught up in either the past or the future, what's going to happen, what, you know, what's this going to cause, what are the consequences of this, that you're never actually there. You're never actually experiencing anything. You're just thinking about what it's gonna, what 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 brought me to this point, and what it's gonna be like later. And so, you know, I, I think to to feel like I I was there, <laughs> to feel to feel like I was awake during the American Dream. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't even think of that, but it kind of works. Yeah, it, it is. It's very much about being in the present moment and being awake is certainly a great metaphor for that, and, and one I use a lot. And and it, it, it's a great point because I, I think the culture itself and and capitalism, uh, you know, what it what it is, is you know, basic capitalism is, is, is a trade, you know, hey, you've got this exchange of goods. It's mm-hmm. pretty basic. And, yeah. um, but, you know, what capitalism has banked on now is people living into some ideal imagined yes. future and yeah. that if they buy the right toothpaste... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That future will unfold. <laughs> and and so we've been so well trained, especially the last 50 years in this country, to uh, to not be present moment oriented yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. The, the marketing has got us caught up in, in how, what's this going to turn me into. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and just our inability in this country to, to really deal with uncomfortable feelings you know emotions you know we don't talk about death in this country we have no way of you know death and and sickness and things like that we just put it under the covers and oh let's put it in the corner you know no well let's walk by the homeless people mm-hmm. you know and all of that and so that makes it difficult to be in the present moment too because in the present moment one feels uncomfortable feelings at times yeah <laughs> and has yeah. fears and yeah. things like that and if you don't really know how to metabolize that stuff you then think, oh, well, the toothpaste will fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll just just get some sparkly toothpaste and I'll be fine. And to, this is where my mind went, to bring this back to uh, stand-up comedy was, uh, you know, when you're, when you're dying in stand-up, it's, it's similar in that, like, I, I, most of the time I just plow through and, like, I, you know, I don't want to be there. It's like, where's the light? I'm getting off or whatever. And so I'm, I'm trying to, like, if, the crowd doesn't like what I'm saying. I'm trying to almost enjoy that moment in a certain way. Like, like this is an experience, and I'm experiencing them hating me. You know, like, 
I, I want to I, I want to be here for that too. Like I want to see that death. <laughs> like, and in the end, you get to say, "Oh, and look, I survived it." It, yeah. it didn't kill me. Uh-huh. It is called dying on stage, but you did actually get to walk off stage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And you can learn, you know, just like you learn a lot about yourself uh, from death around you in your life or sickness or whatever. I think you can learn a lot in stand-up from the, you can probably learn, I really think I learned more from bad shows than good shows. Oh, yeah. I, I would so. I would say, um, if you're a person who's willing to look at yourself, you, you learn something from it. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you're just going to go and, like, get shit-faced and say, fuck it, and I'm not going to look at it. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's the, that's the big metaphor here for America is, you know, we don't really want to look at our history. We don't want to really take responsibility for our actions. And, and so we just, we don't really learn from anything in this country. Well, luckily, Glenn Beck's rewriting the history. So. Oh, that's right. Then so people are learning. We'll be fine. A new history. We'll be fine then. <laughs> a new history. Yes. Apparently, and I, and apparently I, white conservatives were behind the civil rights movement, so that's exciting. Yeah, and, and apparently Jefferson, uh, according to the Texas Board of Textbooks, uh, <laughs> Jefferson really didn't have a lot to do no. with the, the founding of our country at all. He, a minor he, player. He was an absentee forefather. <laughs> <laughs> he was. <laughs> Who probably did... Oh, a lot of money in child support now that I think about it. But I'm sure he paid. It was I'm sure it was very lovely. I'm sure it was fine. Well, Lee, thank you so much for coming and hanging with me. Yeah, thank you. All right. Cool. So that was uh my friend Lee Camp. And uh, you know, normally I play a clip of the person performing, but I thought what I would do today is actually uh at the end of the show play a little clip of uh some of his stand up. Um so, you know, here's the thing. I've been so inundated with politics. We all have been. I feel like I need to take a shower. <laughs> and, and Lee and I did that interview uh, about a month ago. So I thought it would be fun to actually uh, not talk about politics today with my friend that came over for a play date. <laughs> Hi, Rick. Everyone, this is Rick Overton. This is my friend, and he's here on a play date. <laughs> oh, excellent. What wonderful. That's good. Because uh I thought we would talk a little bit about something that I've been experiencing lately. And you're someone who's been how long have you been on a stage doing what you do? Um coming up about forty years. Wow, forty years. And uh, I uh, ha- have not been on stage doing what I do that long. <laughs> but, but unless, he, unless you're going by Shakespeare. Oh, which would mean what? Oh, right. Oh, that's right. Of course, darling. I'm sorry. I completely missed it. I went right over my stupid little head. Um, so, you know, something I kind of had an aha on uh, recently is that... Uh, there is this experience that I think one gets when, well, Lee, Lee mentioned it because he said he started writing at 13. And I said to him, at 13, you believed you had something to say to the world. I, I, I find that so amazing. And, and at 13, I, I guess I kind of did too. But, but what, what I'm finding lately for myself is that I feel like I've had a lot to say to the world, 
but I've been kind of hiding in my house for years with it and, and doing it a little bit here and there and doing some storytelling and stuff like that. But really what's been happening to me lately, and, and I've had two uh, chances in the last month to do some public speaking, is that I actually am no longer in the process of going, oh, do I have the right to be up here? Like, who wants to hear what I have to say? And, and yet, actually, nowadays, I'm like, oh, wait, I do have the right to be up here. And now I'm actually thinking about what is it that I want to say to the world? And, and so I'm wondering for you, like, how did you have that same kind of process? Or um, did, you, did you always feel like you had the right to go up in front of people and say things? Oh, can can we not hear Rick? Oh, hold on. My mic isn't working. Hold on a sec. I'm trying to work on it here. Hello, hello. Can we hear me? My mic. My mic. <laughs> I'm not an expert here, folks. My mic. Uh, Johnny Dam. Okay, I don't know. Uh, well, anyway, until we get figured this figured out. Um, uh, hold on a second. Can. I can't even see myself here. Sorry about that, folks. This is live radio today. It's really, really exciting. Uh, how's this one? Are you good? Uh, no. I, yes, I think so. This one got anything going? Nope, that one doesn't have anything either. Oh. Hold on here. I'm trying to figure it out. Well, I'd like to slow things down and give an acoustic opinion <laughs> here. Uh, this is a little ditty I thought of in the car driving over. Hold on here. I'm trying to get my, Mr. My, my new friend Rick's microphone on. And when he speaks, I'm not hearing him. Hello. Oh, there is that it better? Is. Crank me up. Okay. Once you crack me up. See, we didn't do this at the beginning before the show. Okay. Yeah, I'm being I'm being taught right now the numbers <laughs> on the microphones, everyone. Okay, so we're gonna. Two, we're three, gonna four. <laughs> what number am I, Johnny? Which number am I? I believe Rick is number four. <laughs> Thank you, Johnny Dam, Thanks, my hero, Johnny my Dam. radio station hero. Um, so anyway, um, uh, well, the point's the same. Everyone could hear me talking what the hell I was talking about. So, <laughs> so Rick, for you, when what was it like to – I mean, did you ever have a moment where you didn't feel like you had the right or did you have to learn that? What, what was that process for you? People say stand-up comedy. Well, that's got to be the hardest thing in the world. I would have a heart attack if I had to go on stage. And uh, how do you do it? And it's hard to explain. We're just, we're missing that inhibitor chip that makes you have a heart attack. <laughs> we could, as children, just uh, turn face adults. It was like what little dogs figure out. Little dogs, you know, figure out that if I smile and sort of act like the god two-leg species, that they'll feed me the god food right. and not the crunchy food. <laughs> It's the same rule. We figured out how to make the other face to sort of manipulate circumstance on a grand level. So there was getting whatever the reward was, the potential reward, it was just way more important or overrides any possible fear of, you know, or self-doubt of. It reinterprets itself so it doesn't trigger the adrenaline response anymore. In fact, at a certain point, if you perform long enough, it's, there's a line like an ocean's surface. And below it is, uh, uh, above it is when you're so nervous, like a seagull, you finally come down and just land on the surface of that perfect floating plane. Uh, uh, but after a while, you become like the whale that every now and then stops. 
and go down again because you've, you've done it so many times. It's like your first aircraft carrier landing has got to be terrifying for a Navy guy. Right. Your hundredth one is not as bad. Yeah, and I'm wondering, too, if if boys growing up or, you know, this is a gender issue on some level, too, that, that, that girls aren't – we aren't uh, rewarded so easily for no. this kind of stuff. You no. know, it's like you need to be ladylike or you need to, uh, you know. Not express as much. Yeah. And yet men have no expression skills anyway. It's You're the only ones that could show us how to do it as you guys because we never got the booklet. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like so private expression is okay for women, but public expression of opinion, well, certainly. I mean, historically, we know we know it was not encouraged. And it seems like it's still even built into, I mean, because for me, I've always thought, well, maybe I'm, maybe something's wrong with me. I mean, I had this father who went on a stage and he had no problem speaking his mind. And, and you would think that, you know, usually kids learn from role models and yeah, I saw him up there and I thought, well, I should just be able to do that. But I never, ever thought that that was really my road or I should go and do that. And it's really lately now that he's actually gone and off the planet that that notion or that permission or that safety has even entered my being. That's right. Now you have, you know, it's your own destiny. Uh, The photo album flips to a blank page. Yeah. So you can start to fill it with your own snapshots now. And it's, you know, oh, sure. It's like saying just say no. It's like ditch years of decades of training in another direction and just automatically embrace this new concept because circumstance was thrown your way. Uh, It doesn't work like that, but just know it's in your DNA and your lineage and, you know, you're around it and you're funny as hell and you you make us all laugh at the parties (laughs) and, you you know, you feel free to do it around your sort of extended family friends. You You show the other side and the other guys go, there you go, see? Yeah, and I, I think we all say the same thing. You're getting a unanimous response from all the entertainers. It's kind of like, how could we all be wrong? Well, and I think it's also that there's, um, you know, I think just part of being an adult is figuring out like where you're the same versus where you're the different, different from your parent. You know, and I think that's what's been happening for me too. Is I've been getting like, oh. I see, like, my job isn't to be my dad. I will never be my dad, although I'm clearly influenced by his, his worldview and his outsider worldview. But, like, on Saturday, I went to uh, a rally to restore sanity. I went to Santa Monica. I went to my alma mater, which is Crossroads High School. And it was really cool because what I did there was I did some big mind stuff with the audience. And if, if, if you and uh, my radio audience here remembers, my first interview was with Genpo Roshi who's a Zen master and who teaches this process. And it's where you take two different opposing perspectives and then bring them together to create a third, never been created or uh, seen perspective before. And, and it was really cool because I felt like that's so in my zone. That's so what I'm about. I mean, it's, it's still about an outside perspective and creating a new way to see the world like my dad did, but it's, I don't walk through the door the way he does. I walk through it the way I do and and that's I think an important part of being an artist is figuring out your door, and how you walk through it. You know, mm-hmm. you got to go through lots of doors. Starts to become like a fado, you know, mm-hmm. sort of high speed corridor with going back and forth, <laughs> right. sneaking with your bed clothes on. You know, 
it's it's about being willing to be wrong. If you're going to be a perfectionist, you can't be an artist. Yeah. Don't bother. Yeah. Just go crazy in advance because that's all it's going to do. Just start crazy and just go lock yourself away because that's all you'll get in the end is you'll go nuts trying to get the impossible thing. Whereas all art lives in imperfection. It's the only reason it surprised everyone. We established symmetrical patterns. The only time you catch me is when you did an asymmetrical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's interesting. So there's this real balance then, I guess, between being the dog who knows how to get the, the food from the, you know, get, getting the approval, having that spinning inside of you, willing to be on stage to get the approval, and yet also being willing to not have to do it perfectly, like being willing to fail, being willing to fall on, on your face and maybe not get the approval at the same time. Yeah, the trick is like horseback riding. It's not knowing how to ride. It's learning how to fall. <laughs> I used to do a lot of that when I horseback rode. Yeah, I did a lot of that on stage. <laughs> yeah. A lot of learning how to fall till you know, Johnny Carson was all fall recovery. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. That's very true. The entire style, his biggest laughs were how his last joke sucked. Right, right. And he would, he would, but he, and the thing was is that you were, you'd stay connected to him, though, in those moments. That's his humanity going, he became one of us. Yeah. Making judgment calls on the process rather than facing us the other way. He was really smart. He's sitting on the sofa next to us just calling stuff out at the screen, you know. Yeah, and I think that's a great point because I think a lot of people fear public speaking or even fear having an opinion and voicing it because they feel like that everyone's waiting for them to fail. And what Mm -hmm. I found is usually not that. Usually the audience really wants you to, to, to succeed. Yeah. It's, it, this neo-fascistic gossip, vicious gossip world, which has real like fascism elements to it, you know, just vicious and why? why? And it's just cruelty training, it seems to mm-hmm. me, you know. And what, a, what a time to have more of that. Yeah, well, it, you know, and I feel that like our biggest the biggest fascist is the, is the voice in our head that tells us we're full of shit. Sit down, shut up. Um, well, that's, now, a, that's an external program. You weren't sold with that. Right. You downloaded that. Right, yeah. We're not sold with that. That is a fed thing, so the point is to track the source of it and shut the, the distri- distribution system down. Right. <laughs> or make the, the new model immune to the virus. Right, right. Treat it like a computer. Like, what? You hacked me. Yes. I've been hacked, and I have 10 corkscrews in me of one emotional nature or another. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, when I do life coaching, and I, I, I work with mostly creative people, and this is always, it always comes down to this, is teaching people how to deal with that voice in a way that they see that it is just a tape, that it, it's not real, that it has no power unless you, you give it power, yeah. and, and that it's, its job, it thinks its job, is to protect you, to keep you safe. So. Yeah. These are all, we are a saltwater carbon mechanism hmm. with a very complex soul borrowing it for a while. <laughs> and we're a rental. I love and that's that. why we're all beat the shit, you know? Because <laughs> we're all rental cars, right. spiritual rentals. And uh, I mechanize things on purpose mm-hmm. when I talk about them because it seems like we also have a firewall built in a glitch in our system that won't absorb fact or truth or the latest data about a review about ourselves and our behavior because of shame. 
Yes. Unless you treat it like a machine and it kind of takes the sting of shame off it. I can't be ashamed if my black box goes out of my car. Yeah, yeah. It just broke. I I can't go, oh, shame on me for having, a, you know, I should have known how to keep the black box. They just drop dead sometimes. And then when you get over that, you can start to mechanically chop, chop, fix certain things that... You, and I'm saying you don't have to be mechanical and about the way you fix it the whole time. It's a metaphor, yeah. But I'd say it is. this is for a, a, such a guilt-ridden era. It's one of the shortcut ways to stop feeling guilty about it. See the device as it can be repaired. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know for myself, I mean, because I had such perfectionism issues my whole life, that any kind of criticism or any kind of feed, even just feedback, I mean, I had to learn that feedback was actually a neutral thing and it's what I did with it in my own head that made it either positive or negative or constructive or destructive. And obviously, I mean, some feedback can be really, it's mean, it's mean and it's horrible and it's destructive. Choose your sources. Absolutely. So A, you have to choose your source and B, you have to really see like, how is this useful for me? And maybe there is some truth in this, but maybe it's like 1% truth. Okay, so what am I willing to take in you know, because when you're on stage, I mean, I've learned as a performer that you're always in the feedback loop with the audience and you're seeing what's working and what's not working. And you're always kind of making that dance anyway. So we know how to do this stuff. It's just about making it more conscious and saying, well, maybe I need to take in some information. You know, maybe this isn't landing the way my intention is. Mm. And and other times, you know, some people give you feedback and you can just know, okay, I think you're completely full of shit and that's okay and I'm putting <sighs> you in that pile. <laughs> Shame has a mask it wears when it goes out in public. It's called pride. Mm. Right. They're the, they are two, they're glued together. It's the shadow side of it. Shadow yeah. side of, of uh, yeah, it's pride and it's, it is our, the stupidest of all of our emotions. Yeah. It attaches to anything and it's catastrophic in our lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's ruined almost everything. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's that part of, you know, I was I was talking with Lee about the, the ego. You know, it's the part of our self identity that takes itself way too seriously. Yeah. And, and and it's true with both sides because with shame too, if you're feeling shame, it's because you're taking something way too personally and way too seriously. Mm-hmm. And so there's this very delicate stance of uh, well, it's like when I was talking to Genpo Roshi about this, but it, it is this kind of enlightened stance where you can, in one way, take nothing seriously and get that it's all, it's like the great fool position. Everything is a game. And yet at the same time, take everything seriously. And if you hold both of those perspectives at the same time, you get a really beautiful dance because there's a lot of room between taking responsibility for yourself and not killing yourself if you get it wrong. Yeah. You know? That's a, it's, it's a, what a shame. What, what an enemy of bold experimentation. Yeah. To have something that waits if you get the first round wrong and just chops your head off. Yeah, yeah. What, a, what, a, what an unfair fate for bold explorers. Yeah. Well, I always say to people, you know, uh, when people are really hard on themselves, I'm like, would you treat your best friend like that? Yeah. And you know, 99 out of 100 times they say, oh, no, I totally cut them slack. And I'm like, then why don't you cut yourself a little slack? Yeah. I mean, you know what? By the way, be- someone who treats themselves like crap, 
friends aren't getting up that easy either. You know, their version of not giving them crap still can have a lot of crap in it. Yeah, yeah, but but it's it's interesting how some people really do treat themselves They're much the harsher. Worst of every, much harsher, but everyone gets a taste, you know. Yeah. Because your inner view of yourself is the outer view of the world. Absolutely. Everybody, it's like a boardwalk characteristic. Kind of everyone sort of roughly has your chin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's a great image. Okay, well, uh, Rick, I want to thank you cu- for coming over and thank you playing Cal. with me today. Fun play date with Play-Doh. <laughs> play date with Play-Doh. Uh, so oh, I, wa- I did you know I went to the Washington rally and uh, oh, that's right. And I wanted to say that it was just you know day before Halloween, and there were less people in costume than at the Beck rally. <laughs> And really, the bottom line is, aren't we all in costume? We are. And (laughs) seen. (laughs) So, everyone, thank you for uh, hanging with me today. And stick around here for the next uh, five or six minutes and enjoy this uh, lovely uh, stand-up here of my dear friend, Mr. Lee Camp. And uh, I'm going to be going on a boat on Saturday for a week with Louis Black and a bunch of comedians. So I'll be coming back with some crazy stories about... My Caribbean cruise with Lou, Lou's cruise. And uh, until then, have a great week. Fuck the Amish, all right? Right? Fuck the Amish, because I think they might be right about everything. I think those bearded apple butter making motherfuckers have it right. That pisses me off, man. Think about it. They've never contributed to global warming because they don't have the cars or factory farms. They, they didn't lose any money in the stock market or the housing collapse because all their all their money's tied up in black frocks and barn raising implements. You know, they, they they never had to look at Britney Spears' bald, confused cooch when it was all over the news two years ago, which means they've had an easier time eating their dinner for the past two years. They, they've never heard of Larry the Cable Guy. They've never they've never subjected themselves to a Wendy's Famous Baconator Burger, which means they've never been through the Wendy's Famous Four-Day Recovery Period. You know, they've they've never had to hear the screeching idiocy of Sarah Palin or the poorly crafted Tourette's of Glenn Beck. They don't vote for the assholes we put into office, which means their souls are responsible for the bombs being dropped. Fuck the Amish, all right? living the good life and I would gladly shave my upper lip and put on a stovepipe hat and a big phone number one hand that said Jebediah if it, if it wasn't for the fact that they don't have internet porn or, or slurpees Ugh. if they would just let those two things through the front barn gates man I would be out of here in a horse and buggy I, I would find myself a goodly Amish maiden named Dorothy Stoltzfus and we would start planting some radishes so call me Abraham I don't give a fuck we can fix this 
they have a they have a different type of society. And you got I think we should start a new society. I think we should start over, fix all the shit that we didn't get right the first time. Like I think we should start a new society where everyone gets health care before a single dog gets health care, and everyone gets shoes before a single dog gets shoes, and everyone gets a frisbee before a single dog gets a frisbee. You know? Frisbee went too far. All right, not the last part. But there's just a new society where, where, where if you're homeless, you get to live inside of the empty buildings littering our landscape. I mean, Jesus, like, like if you're a hobo, you get your own personal boarded-up circuit city. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a vagrant, you get to live inside of linens and things. If you're a, a schizophrenic veteran living on the streets, you get your own private Chrysler dealership. Right? It'd be poetic, wouldn't it? The, the, the victims of unfettered, unregulated, velociraptor-style capitalism living inside of the corpses of the businesses who cause that shit. It would be fucking poetic. We need a new society where, where anyone who get, wants to get married can get married, but if you want to have a kid over number two, it's voted on by the people in a case-by-case basis. Alright, so... So if you want to fire 14 kids into this country out of your semi-automatic assault vagina, then, 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 then we get a say. They better be top-level devices, all right? They better be top shelf. There's no point in a birthing an Atari in an Xbox 360 world. All right? We don't need any more douchebags, numbnuts, schmucks, ass clowns, jerk-offs, and dingleberries. All right, those spots are filled. Thanks for applying. Try down the street at the diesel store. We need a new, new society where, where, where we stop with this America's number one bullshit. You can say America's your favorite. That's fine. America's my favorite. But when people run around going, America's number one, that just makes them okay with bombing some country they know nothing about. Because they're like, oh, well, we're number one, and they're number, like, 137. So they, they, they're cave people over there. They like bombs. They like bombs. Because they don't have electricity, and uh, it lights up the night sky so they can read at night. It, they like bombs over there. You know what? Maybe our society isn't the best. Maybe it's just different. Maybe, they, maybe some of them really are living in caves, but I've never seen a foreclosed-on sign in front of any of their caves. I've never heard any of them bitching about how they spent their last $12 on Alvin and the Chipmunks the Squeakle, and now they're losing their cave because they signed a subprime cave loan. So maybe we're just your favorite, you know? A new society where, 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 where no more infinite wars... You can have, we can have our war, but it, it, every war should be like milk. It should have a bomb-by date right there on the side of the box. And after that, you're done. I don't care if you have excuses. No, I'm not, we, we, there's a wedding in Kandahar province. We haven't hit yet. I don't care. It's over. You'll get them next time, you know? You'll get them next. I mean, honestly, like, Afghanistan, at this point, aren't we just running up the score? Isn't it like 108 to 3 over there? Shouldn't we take our starters out of the game? Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. If it were the U.S. versus Afghanistan in football or baseball instead of war, we would, the mercy rule would have kicked in long ago, all right? No, no, all the fans would have left the stadium because no one wants to watch Ray Lewis beat the fucking pulp out of a Tiny Tots team. You know? 
new societal paradigm, I think. I think we could do it. Will we solve the nation's energy crisis by just taking all the piss generated at, at sporting events and wrestling matches and ACDC reunion tours, and it's just channeled into tunnels that turn turbines that power the entire country. And if that's not enough, we start burning reality TV stars, right? Seriously, how great would that be? You'd be like, oh, my lights are on, and I'll never see the Jersey Shore kids again. This is, 